Hello listeners, my name is Gardo. Welcome back to my podcast. Today I'm hoping to do a slightly special episode. I want to talk about the Mass Effect series, um, a video game series produced by Bioware, um, which is about to see its original trilogy of games relaunched as the Mass Effect Legendary Edition, releasing on May 14th. So I would like to talk a little bit about why it's one of my favourite series in science fiction, um, what it means for me, and hopefully explore some of the story, the world building, etc. to explain why I recommend it so much to people. Uh, there will be some spoilers, um, but I will try not to spoil too much of the game. So please stick around as we explore the Mass Effect trilogy. In the year 2148, the explorers on Mars discovered the remains of an ancient spacefaring civilization. In the decades that followed, these mysterious artefacts revealed startling new technologies, enabling travel to the furthest stars. The basis for this incredible technology was a force that controlled the very fabric of space and time. They called it the greatest discovery in human history. The civilizations of the galaxy call it Mass Effect. So, I suppose first I should discuss what Mass Effect is. Mass Effect, like I said, is a video game series. It was created by Bioware. In The first game was released in 2007, just before Bioware was acquired by Electronic Arts. Now, Bioware had been famous for role-playing games um, with a more... Semi-traditional, but very cinematic ones. Um, the first examples had been the Baldur's Gate series and Neverwinter Nights, both of which were produced under the Dungeons & Dragons license. However, their most famous game at the time was probably Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic, which had released on Xbox and PC. Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic was set 4,000 years before the original Star Wars trilogy and featured the character... Well, the, the main character was a Republic soldier who later found out that they were a Jedi um, being sent on a mission to reassemble a star map that had been sought years ago by the Sith Lord Darth Revan. Um, Darth Revan's Sith Empire was currently waging a war but uh, against the Republic, but Revan himself had been believed killed uh, several years before the game. It turned out, um, during a mid-game twist, that the player character was actually a brainwashed Revan being used by the Jedi to try and find the source of the Sith Empire's power and end them. 
During the course of the game, you could ally with either the light or dark side of the force, um, which would change the ending of the game. You could be, you could solve a lot of the game's quests in a variety of ways. And generally, it was a very well-received, very beloved game. Um, I'm a big fan of it. Uh, it featured a lot of very notable character work. Most characters were fully voiced. Um, there were romance options, etc. It became a, a lot of things that soon became mainstays in role-playing games as a genre. Um, but things that Bioware definitely used going forward. Knights of the Old Republic formed a blueprint for much of the development of the first Mass Effect. Um, but Mass Effect was created... Um, by Bioware as a way of essentially creating their own intellectual property rather than being forced to work within the constraints of license holders. Now, Mass Effect, the first game especially, thematically follows a lot of very similar beats um, to the first Knights of the Old Republic. There are several twists that are revealed um, through the course of the game. Um, you have to visit several planets, almost in terms of a uh, a treasure hunt, similar to Revan's Search for the Star Map, um, which allow you to fill in um, greater clues as to the eventual main enemy of the game. Uh, you're given a central antagonist to oppose, however, uh, in Saren Arturius, however, that character is not the main villain of the trilogy. And obviously there are varied side quests which you can solve in a variety of ways. You have a squad around you which you are able to pursue friendships or rivalries or romances with as, you know, as applicable. Some of your characters can die um, th as a result of your actions and decisions. Some may not join up with you at all as a result of your actions and decisions. And all the characters are fully voiced, including the player character of Commander Shepard, um, who you could choose to be male or female, and in both versions was fully voiced. Every conversation path was fully voiced. There was a dialogue wheel at the bottom of the screen, which is something that I think Mass Effect was the first game to ever really use, but many other games outside of Bioware have since used something similar um, to give you a kind of quick a quick overview of what your responses would be rather than seeing full typed out lines of text. Um, and then the character of Shepard would say uh, a line and characters would respond to that as if it was a an emergent conversation it was it was something very different from a lot of rpg games at the time it was it made shepherd a more defined character um within the world but without necessarily losing the immersion that you had as a player personally i'm a huge fan of it i i thought it was a a very good way of doing it. As I said, uh, Shepard has a, a defined character, but you are able to mould 
um, Shepard's history and in-game decisions um, to match what you wanted as your own form of roleplay. Now, the world of Mass Effect was a very interesting one. It's set in 2183, I believe the first game is set. Humanity has only been part of the galactic stage for, I think, 30-odd years. How, so first contact is something that was within the lifetimes of um, many of the characters. And first, time, first contact did not go well. It led to a first contact war with one of the other races known as the Turians. The Turians are one of several races on the council of the um, main governing body of space, which is located on the Citadel. The Citadel Council includes the oldest race in the galaxy, which are the Asari, um, all of which are female. They are a monogendered species, able to reproduce using almost asexual reproduction. Um, however, they can incorporate traits from other species as well as other Asari. Um, so it's asexual, but not in a way. Now, the Asari are very long-lived. Each of them lives for roughly a thousand years. Um, as a result, they're quite slow, quite patient in how they do things, very measured, very deliberate. Um, they were the first species to discover the Citadel and are one of the most revered species in the galaxy. Um, the other species... The other species on the council is the Salarians. The Salarians are a very short-lived race. Uh, maximum lifespan is roughly around 40 years. They look very much like the standard grey aliens. They have an almost amphibious look to them. And most Salarians you meet in the entire trilogy of games are male. Um, it seems that males are much more dominant in their society than females. Many of them are scientists or spies. Um, the Turians are an avian race, but with a kind of hard outer shell to them, um, is the best way to describe it. Um, they roughly live about 150 years. Um, their culture is very Roman in a lot of senses, there's um, military service is something that is very much expected um, among Turian culture. Um, and there is a service to the state element. The Turians are the most recent additions to the Citadel Council. For a long time, it was just the Asari and the Salarians as the ruling body. Many other races exist on the Citadel um, with or, or in you know, the galaxy of Mass Effect. Um, and, yeah, the history stretches back millennia. Um, so while Earth history, you know, while Earth was sailing ships in the, the 15th century, um, you know, the, the Asari were finding the Citadel and forming the early galactic government. Um and plenty of other things like that. It's very, very interesting, the, the work that they put in to explore this entire culture um, 
well, mix of cultures thousands of years ago. Um, but it does lead to the to the phenomenon that someone explains one of the characters explains in the first game, which is that we arrive on the final frontier to find it's already settled, which is a very big departure from a lot of other science fiction properties, um, such as Star Trek, where humanity is almost one of the dominant forces in galactic exploration. Here, we're the new people, and we're not especially trusted as a result of the First Contact War. You know, humans are seen as ambitious and greedy by the rest of the galaxy, almost. Um, impulsive and impetuous. And a lot of them aren't quite sure what to make of us, whether they should trust us or not. As I said, your player character is uh, Commander Shepard. Uh, they can be male or female. Personally, I'm a big fan of the female Shepard, purely because I believe that while voice actor Mark Mia for the male Shepherd does get better over the series, in the first game his dialogue as Shepherd isn't quite as nuanced as Jennifer Hale's dialogue as female Shepherd. Um, plus, I also tend to prefer a lot of uh, female Shepherd's romance options, despite the fact that there aren't as many for female Shepherd as there are for male Shepherd. Now, Commander Shepard can be... Commander Shepard is always a, a military commander. They've undergone special training, known as N7 training, um, to make them uh, almost a very elite commando. And they have had an incident in their service history. Um, one of three possible incidents. You can decide which one you want to use. Um which has made them a respected war hero. Having said that, only one of the backgrounds is described as war hero, which is the more noble of the three incidents. Um, the other one is soul survivor, um, which case Shepard is the only survivor of a particular event. And uh, the other is ruthless, where they lead a mission to... Uh, great effect, however, um, it involves a lot of casualties on their side. So yeah, but Shepard is either way seen as a very capable soldier. And the human government is proposing that Shepard be admitted to a group of the group that work for the Citadel called the Spectres. Spectres are essentially elite agents under the direct supervision of the Citadel Council, um, sent to perform elite missions, um, almost with a more delicate touch than sending in a fleet or a, a unit of soldiers. Or So, Spectres are kind of somewhere between... Somewhere between James Bond and a Jedi, I suppose, would be the, the best example. Um... They can be the soldiers, diplomats, spies, etc. But the, their their final they they're allowed to complete their mission in whichever way they see fit, 
um, and they're only answerable to the council when they do so. So, so that's the the basis of the game. Shepard is being posited as joining the Spectres. So you go on the opening mission of the first game involves going to a planet, um, which is on your way. You're you're going there to pick up uh, a beacon. Now the beacons were left by the Protheans, a now extinct uh, civilization that died roughly fifty thousand years ago. Um, no one really knows how, but somehow over a period of several years, the Protheans suddenly disappeared. Um, there's very few relics, but the relics that there are include the mass relays. And the Citadel, which are what have enabled galactic civilization. The mass relays are the technology that allows faster than light travel. Um, essentially like giant warp gates um, between certain star systems. And the actual mass effect technology fields, which is uh, uses a fictional substance called Element Zero, charged with an electric field to affect the mass of an object. Um, which again allows faster than light travel, but also allows um all weapons in the the world which use sort of railgun effects, um, and kinetic barriers which are almost shielding, um, which can be used on sort of personal armor or on starships. Um. There's a lot of effort in the world, in the in-game codex especially, to try and explain a lot of this technology. I'll admit not all of it works as, as well as they would like. There is still some elements of space magic and implausibility, um, especially when it comes to biotics, which are essentially like the, the psychic slash magic powers of this world. Um, biotics are beings that were tainted in utero um, and changed by exposure to element zero. Um, the ones that didn't die horribly due to mutations become biotics when they grow up and are able to harness uh, mass effect fields to perform feats such as telekinesis or more advanced feats such as opening small singularities. Uh, in terms of gameplay, obviously those are essentially magic abilities. They're generally very good and they look very impressive, especially in the later games, but their scientific explanation is somewhat tenuous, <laughs> as much as people who are fans of the series might try and say that it isn't. Shepard obviously has the option to be a biotic, but there are usually biotic squad mates in your crew. Um, usually the Asari, all of the Asari race are biotic, um, as a matter of course. Uh, and there are obviously many biotic members of other species as well. Now, as I said, you go to this first mission to pick up a Prothean beacon. The last time humans found a Prothean beacon, it was what enabled them to join galactic civilization, as it explained the Mass Effect technology. The... As you arrive for the mission on Eden Prime, you learn that Eden Prime is actually under attack. You get there, you find it under attack by a race of synthetics called the Geth. 
and you learn during the course of the mission that the Geth are being led by a Turian spectre known as Saren. So, when you finish the mission and return to the Citadel to explain that Saren has betrayed the Council and seemingly allied with the hostile race known as the Geth, um, you are instead... Uh, you are... Well, you try to explain this to the Council and are, first of all, disbelieved. So then you have to find proof. In finding proof, you slowly assemble your squad, other people who are investigating Saren um, for multiple reasons, or his associates for other reasons. And you learn, you eventually find a clip confirming that Saren is working with the Geth, and he is trying to bring back a race known as the Reapers. Now, at this point, you know nothing of the Reapers. However, the Geth apparently worship them as gods, almost machine gods from beyond the galaxy. And it's insinuated that they had something to do with the Prothean extinction. But that's all you know. You are then made Spectre and sent out into the galaxy to find more information on the Reapers. Um especially because while on Eden Prime, before the beacon was destroyed, it imparted on both you and Saren a vision of what seems to be the Protheans being exterminated by machines, which you, as Shepard, believe to be the Reapers. So you believe that the Reapers returning will lead to another extinction similar to what was seen with the Protheans. And that is essentially the first few hours of setup for the first game. Um, I say first few hours, it's about between five to ten hours, depending on how many of the side quests you accomplish along the way while doing that main mission. Um, and from there, you work as a spectre. You carry on assembling your squad. You confront Saren. You learn more about what the Reapers are. As well as performing all these side quests. And then from there, you confront Saren. You find out more about the Reapers, which I don't want to spoil too much of here. Um, and go from there to explore the rest of the game. And then in finishing the game, all of your decisions that you have made in every quest, how you have affected your squad members, um, which characters you have left alive, which characters you have killed, all of that is then imported into the second game in the series, Mass Effect 2. And then again, from Mass Effect 2, you can import everything into Mass Effect 3. And this was always announced from the early days of this release, that this was planned as a trilogy, and that all of your decisions would carry over and have impact in the sequels. Which again was something that I don't think any RPG had ever done at the time. Um, and very few RPGs have been able to accomplish since. Because there is a lot of decisions that impart from those games. Um, 
yeah, it's very hard not to to delve into spoilers because I I do recommend these games to everyone. Um and some of the best twists in the series come in that first game. But yes, you confront Saren, you learn the truth about the Reapers and what they are and what they ha- what happened to the Protheans and everything and it's phenomenal. So, what can I talk about without delving into too too many spoilers? Um, I could talk about the gameplay. Um, However, the gameplay of Mass Effect is... It's pretty standard for an RPG. It's somewhere between an RPG and an action game. As the series goes on, it evolves um, to more of a, a cover shooter. It was... You know, the gameplay is divided between conversations exploration and combat uh in a pretty pretty even balance between the three you know you'll explore worlds you'll explore environments you'll converse with everyone explore their entire conversation paths or you'll be in combat fighting enemies but (sighs) gameplay isn't one that i'm I feel confident discussing and critiquing. I, I enjoy the gameplay of Mass Effect. It's serviceable enough. There's changes to the gameplay throughout the three core games. Um, some, I think, improve the series. Some, I think, don't. Um, but generally, it's it's pretty serviceable across the three. No, so what I want to talk about instead is the world building. I've already alluded to... Um, Citadel Space, the Asari, the Salarians, the Turians, the Protheans, the Reapers. But there's a lot more in the game than that. So, the very first game introduces... It introduces as part of its course about a dozen races, um, all of which are developed throughout the game um there's index there's codex entries that you can access in game that provide a full history but you can also explore a lot of history of these different races through dialogue um so like i said the asari are one of the first races first major sentient races in the galaxy they have um their own you know, quite a long and storied history. They're all biotic. They are all blue-skinned, hairless, uh, female. Um, they're represented mainly on your crew by the character of Liara Tassoni, um, who becomes a companion and close ally of Shepard um, throughout the uh, trilogy, um, including a squad mate in the first and third games. The Turians are probably the race you see the most apart from the Asari. Um, There's a lot of Turian characters in the game, um, especially the first game with Saren being Turian as well. Uh, There's many Turian supporting characters on different planets. Um, They tend to have uh, facial markings to match their clans. Um... 
their their home world palavan like i said is very structured their they have a devotion to sort of duty and service and honor and um things like that they yeah very very interesting race um for example one of the characters you meet in the first game you're told is um you're told is a like a, a corporate spy he's involved in like embezzlement he's on the take um but then you find out he's turian and it's like well he wouldn't be on the take he's turian it, it wouldn't match their culture for him to do that uh the salarians are probably the most underdeveloped of the three um races there are some major um, Salarian characters. You don't really get a Salarian squad mate until the second game. Um, and even then he is the only... He's one, he's one of the major Salarian characters across the trilogy. Um, I'll talk more about the squad mates in a bit. Um, other races, there's the Human Systems Alliance, obviously, that, like I said, you're the new kids on the block. Um... The first contact war with the Turians has led to a lot of people in a lot of people across the galaxy, especially in Citadel space, seeing you as dangerous, um, impulsive, impetuous, and yeah, the galaxy as a whole doesn't seem to know what to make of humans. Um, we do see beyond the Systems Alliance, which is the the main human government. We also see many human pirates, um, smugglers, etc. Other races, there's several races that are a part of the Citadel um, Citadel conglomeration of races. Um, there's the Hanar, which are essentially all pink jellyfish. Um, they speak about themselves in a very bizarre way, very third-person way. Um, they refer to themselves as this one and it. They have like a hidden a hidden name that they only use among themselves as well as a face name that they reserve for the public. Um, they tend to communicate um, in almost an ethereal voice which is explained in the in-game codex as actually being a the in-game translator um, translating their bioluminescence um, to explain what they're actually saying, which I thought was very, very cool. Uh, <laughs> they're, they're definitely one of the more interesting races in the first game, just from a purely visual perspective. Um, and, and I think this is one of the first games where I'd seen that level of non-humanoid race as NPCs. Um, I mean, even in Star Wars, uh, Knights of the Old Republic, which had been done by Bioware, most of the races were humanoid. Um, and yes, there were some like the Huts that were not, but they were still things that we expected to see from Star Wars. They still had vaguely humanoid features, facial features, uh, arms that we were expecting. The Hanar are very, very different to that. And you don't see a lot of 
those more bizarre character designs in a lot of sci-fi um especially in live action because those things tend to be hampered by budget um you know star trek most races are humanoid for example um i think the main show i can think of that had some more bizarre out there character designs is farscape but even in farscape there were recognizable features such as facial features the hano have none of that they are literally pink jellyfish Oh, minor uh, addendum. All of these races are not capitalised like they are in a lot of other sci science fiction properties. Um, for example, the Klingons in Star Trek is always spelt with a capital K. Same with the Vulcans. Um, a lot of the races in Star Wars, um, such as the Bothans, the Huts, again, they're all capitalised, and humans hardly ever are. In... Mass Effect, in the same way that human is not capitalised, neither are Asari, Quarian, Turian, Geth, Hanar, any of the race names. The only one that is, um, besides the Reapers, which is obviously a name given to them, is the Protheans. Um, because, presumably, because of their impact and the origin of their name. We don't know what the species' actual name was, we just refer to them as the Protheans. So yeah, um, I, I always found that a very nice touch that, again, was something that seems to be a bit more unique to Mass Effect. I've not really seen it in anything else. It's, it's relatively common in fantasy settings, for example, with elves and dwarves don't always end up capitalised. But um, for a science fiction property, it's a very unique one. Anyway, the other council races, there's two others which are... are humanoid to an extent but also very bizarre there's the volus which are these diminutive um aliens in pressure suits um they're nomadic um as a result of being nomadic they tend to refer to humans as earth clan um because they refer to people by the clan of where they're from so humans are all earth clan because we come from earth which I thought was a, a nice touch. They, they're mainly bankers. Um, they're basically attributed with creating the galactic economic system. Uh, and were one of the first races that um, joined the Citadel. But they didn't get um, a council seat. Something that some of the Volus characters you can encounter can be quite bitter about. Um, despite their contributions to galactic society. However, it's explained that um, the council would also be responsible for defending Citadel space, um, and the Volus don't have the means to do that. They're also explained as being a client race of the Turians. And like I said, all of this is discoverable in in-game dialogue, um, you know, by exploring the conversation options with different characters you can learn all of this and then it's elaborated again in the in-game codex um the third race is the elcor the elcor come from high gravity world and they're enormous that their arms are like tree trunks all four limbs are planted very heavily on the ground and the elcor 
were one of the most interesting ones to me when I first played the game. Their entire culture speaks um, in a very slow, almost monotonous way um, to other races. However, it's explained that they have a lot of um, almost subconscious uh, ticks in their communication. Things like um, pheromone releases, minor um, pitch changes that are outside the range of uh, human hearing. Um, so but among themselves, they are perfectly understood. Like one of the first, the first Elcor you can encounter, you can find him talking to another Elcor and they're talking normally. But when they talk to other races, they tend to preface their sentence with what the intended um, intended meaning of the sentence would be, knowing that a lot of that nuance that they have between themselves is completely lost. And I thought that was so interesting, especially because you could hear them talking without it to each other. Um... And it leads to some very, very interesting ideas. For example, one of the news stories that you can encounter as you're, as you're wandering around the environment of the Citadel, um, on, on a lot of these elevators you can get news stories, some of which are lead you to side quests and some of which are just flavour text for the world. And one that is flavour text for the world and ends up becoming an ongoing joke throughout the series, um, sort of a running gag almost, is that a human director wants to direct a version of Hamlet with an all Elcor cast and have them act the lines as though they were Elcor, so not prefacing um, their intended meaning, with the goal being that you would judge Hamlet, the character of Hamlet within the play, by his actions and not by his feelings. Um which I thought is such an interesting idea. Um, and yeah, that, that becomes a running joke throughout the series. You see in the second game that uh, you see an, an advert for that production of Hamlet. And then in the third game, you get to overhear the director talking about his next project. Um, and you get to see one of the out-of-work Elcor actors. <laughs> and um, yeah, it's... Oh, it's, it's absolutely fantastic, the the world-building and the consistency between them. Um, the There's also a race called the Keepers, which you see in the background of the Citadel. They're very insectoid, with four legs, uh, multiple arms as well. Um, and they are just known as the Keepers, and all they do is maintain the Citadel. And no one really knows how or why. And there's uh, that will be explained as the game goes on, but I don't want to get into it because of spoilers. Um, two other major races you encounter, uh, both are exemplified by at least one squad mate in the first game. There's the Quarians. Now, the Quarians um, used to be part of the Citadel Council. Uh, well, not the Council, but Citadel Space. They constructed... Um, uh, basically a synthetic slave race, um, you know, for, for menial labour and uh, things like that. The 
Now, this the synthetics, the geth, were not AI um, because AI research is illegal. However, the AI the the programs within the geth are able to gain in intelligence when they're in a group um, as they form something called consensus. What happened is the geth, the more of them there were, the more intelligent they became. And they eventually rebelled against the Quarians. The As a result, the Quarians were exiled from their homeworld of Rannoch. Their creation of the Geth also meant that they were exiled from Citadel space. And their entire race now wears lives on a fleet called the Migrant Fleet. Um, and obviously all the, the issues that that would entail, for example, um, restricted birth rates... Um, due to a lack of resources, things like that. And one of the, the key traits of this as well is that their immune systems are shot because they have, they've been living in sterile ship environments for so long that their actual immune systems are, are severely weakened to the point that they need special suits to exist outside um, of the fleet. Um, and as we learn in later games, even on the fleet in some cases, the Geth, meanwhile, um, disappeared from known space and kind of hid themselves behind uh, an area of space called the Perseus Vale. And they haven't been seen since until the start of the game. Um, Saren being allied with the Geth is obviously noteworthy um, because the Geth haven't been seen in something like 300 years since they exiled the Quarians. Which is a great bit of backstory. And you get in the second game as well, um, there is the option to learn way more about the Geth and their origins and everything like that. And that goes into the third game as well, if you, should, if you want to pursue it. A lot of it's done through side quests and optional objectives. But I highly recommend it because the Geth are phenomenally interesting. And seeing, learning more about them and their side of the conflict with the Quarians creates a lot of the, the shades of grey that I think Mass Effect does very, very well. Very few things in Mass Effect are black or white. There's no real hero or villain path in the same way that there is in like Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic. In Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic... You know, everything is towards the light side or the dark side. In Mass Effect, what you instead have is a morality system um, of Paragon and Renegade. Now, the idea is that Shepard is always a hero. Shepard will always be heroic. However, the way that Shepard is a hero is different. Shepard can either be a shining Paragon of, you know, virtue and justice... Or Shepard can be a renegade, a maverick, who will get the job done no matter what the consequences. And, of course, you can you can balance in between them. Uh, a lot of the fan base tend to call it, you know, Paragade or, or Renegon. Um, personally, myself, I tend to play Paragade. Um, I'm, I'm mainly, you know, mainly trying to find the more peaceful solution to things. But, you know, occasionally, sometimes you go to crack some skulls. Um... 
and it's a very interesting take because it means that there is no real right or wrong way of solving a lot of the problems um and that's something that carries through out the series um you know you there'll be times where you have to choose solutions to big galaxy spanning problems and there is no right or wrong solution there'll be times where you know you might have to choose between the the lives of certain people and there is no right or wrong answer you know um according to the game some some will come across as more paragon or more renegade but in general some of the biggest decisions in the games all the way up to the ending are ones that you will wrestle with and you'll be like should i have done that and that's something i really enjoyed about the series as well um yeah, I mentioned there were a dozen races. There's more races in the game. Uh, the, the final one I want to talk about is the Krogan. The Krogan are very, very interesting. Essentially, um, I believe it's several thousand years bef before the, the main games, the Citadel encountered a race called the Rachni. Now, the Rachni are an insectoid race that essentially attacked Citadel space. Um, the Citadel was on a losing side of, of the war against the Rachni. It was only really the Asari and the Salarians as the Citadel Council at this point. Um, the Turians weren't a part of the galaxy yet. So the Salarians, uplifted, by which I mean they gave the technology um, to the Krogan to allow them to join Galactic Society, which means the Salarians obviously knew about the Krogan, but you know, in in a similar way to sort of the first contact rule in Star Trek, they, rather than not get involved, they deliberately got involved. The Krogan are these giant reptilian, almost dinosaur-looking creatures that live on a world so hostile that even as a sapient race, one of their highest causes of death is being eaten by predators. Like, in terms of their design, they have their eyes on the side of their head, which is something which is usually reserved for a prey animal, which gives you an idea of just how, you know, they have giant humps on their back to store resources, you know, in the same way as a camel. Um, just things from their visual design that you're able to infer about this race, despite the fact they look so fearsome. Um, you get to go to the Krogan homeworld in the second game, and it's a bomb-blasted nuclear wasteland. And the Krogans had done that to themselves before the Salarians arrived. Um, so yeah, the, the Krogans are very, very interesting. But essentially, the Salarian raised them up and used the Krogan as essentially shock troops to deal with the Rachni. The Krogan eventually exterminated the Rachni, like they were able to survive the hostile environments of the Rachni homeworlds, so they destroyed the Rachni. Now, the Krogan were then given new worlds to settle. However, obviously being a, a prey animal and, you know, living on a, a very a very dangerous world, the Krogan have an extremely high birth rate. 
as a result, their population exploded. Their numbers increased exponentially. And eventually, you ended up with the Krogan Rebellions. As the Krogan, the new Krogan colonies tried to seize more power and influence away from the Citadel. As a result, the recent race that had been discovered, which was the Turians, um, fought back against the Krogan as the main military arm of the Citadel. Now, the Salarians worked on a virus, almost, which they called the Genophage, which would have affected the Krogan birth rate and essentially diminished it. Um, and the Salarians were kind of loath to use it because it would essentially lead to mass stillbirth. It wasn't, it wasn't so much reducing the, the birth rate. What it was was reducing the viability of uh, Krogan infants. So, but the Turians used it instead, as it, in its in the form it was in. As a result, Krogan numbers drastically dropped um, because they couldn't replenish their losses anymore. Uh, and the Krogan, uh, every single Krogan is infected by the Genophage, and they've all been left. Um, you know, as a shattered race. They don't have a huge army or government in the same way that they did before. Instead, most of them are just hiring themselves out as mercenaries because they still want to fight. Because that's one thing they can do and one thing they're good at. And a lot of them are filled with rage about it and about the genophage. Um, they're no longer really part of the, the government and part of the Citadel anymore. And yeah, the, 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 so those are some of the main races you encounter. You encounter more races later on. Um, you encounter a race called the Batarians in one of the first DLCs for Mass Effect. The Batarians are, are generally slavers. They have uh, they left the Citadel. They've clashed a lot with humanity over colonies and things like that. So they've got a very troubled relationship with humanity in fact one of um, a couple of um shepherds histories that you can select involve batarians either fighting against them or being affected by their actions for example the colonist background um, your entire family were wiped out when batarian slavers came to your colony um, they're also notable for having four eyes, um, which looks very bizarre in practice. Um, other races were added in later games. Um, you got a race called the Drell, who were a client race of the Hanar. Um, your main introduction to them is a, a Drell assassin who becomes a, a part of your crew in the second game. Um, they're, the world that they come from is very dry um, and obviously the Hanar live on a water world um, as a result the the character that you encounter, Thane, is dying um, due to a, a lung infection and you find out that this lung infection is fairly common among the, the Drell um, not that there's many of them left you know, the ones that the Hanar were able to save are pretty much the only ones that still remain um there's also a 
race called the Vorcha. Um, the Vorcha are sort of snarling beast men with a very, very quick life cycle. I think they're only stated to live about 20 years. Um, but they're very, very adaptable. Um, Krogan tend to use them as uh, shock troops. Um, and, you know, for the sort of race that the Krogan need to use them as shock troops, is they must be very, very hardy. Um, they're also very dumb, very snarly. <laughs> and they, they, yeah, some of those are very, very interesting. They get in introduced in the second game. Um, no real races are introduced in the third game. However, a lot of the previous conflicts sort of come to a head with different races, and you start to see more of the genders of different races for the first time. For example, f we don't see any female Turians until the third game, specifically one of the third game's DLCs, um, where we get given a female Turian character. Um, but we do get more elaboration on the enemies and some more enemy designs in the third game. And yeah, this, this world building was what captured me. The, um, you know, the alien races especially. It was very, very interesting. And there's also the idea of the, the galaxy itself. Um, in Mass Effect, the, the mass relays, which are, like I said, almost these jump gates that you use to travel between systems, they're separated by quite a distance. For example, the... The one that we find in the human system is uh, Charon, as in the moon of Pluto, Charon. is essentially the mass relay encased in ice. Obviously, this was um, before the recent probes to Pluto and Charon, where we saw that actually Charon, unfortunately, is not a uh, mass relay in a block of ice, and is in fact just a, a rocky moon. But... Uh... <laughs> But still, um, so the Charon relay connects to one other relay, which is the relay at Arcturus. Now, Arcturus is a star, a real star, a red giant, and it's not one of our closest stellar neighbours. In fact, it's quite far away. Uh, I have to look it up. Yeah, looking it up, uh, Arcturus is 36 uh, 0.7 light years away from Earth. So, a close star, uh, relativistically speaking, but uh, not one of our closest neighbours. Um, Arcturus then led to, obviously, several other mass relays, because some mass relays can lead to more than one, and so on and so on. Um, so, for example, to get from Earth to the Citadel, you have to go through several different relay jumps um, from Charon to Arcturus and then Arcturus on to several others until you hit the main relay network. The As a result, you sort of end up jumping star clusters or systems in between star clusters. So the insinuation is that most of the galaxy is settled, but also the galaxy is very, very spread out. The settled space is very, very spread out. Very, very spread out. 
excuse me. Um, so, as a result, there's the galaxy is divided into several groups. Um, Citadel space is the main one. Um, obviously, that includes the space belonging to the Systems Alliance, which is Earth space, and there's the Outer Council space and the Inner Council space. Um, this is all more defined in the galaxy map in Mass Effect 3, um, which was used for the, the Galaxy at War gameplay system um, in the original game, although that has been removed from the, the Legendary Edition. Now... Um, there's two other areas as well. There's the Terminus Systems. Now, the Terminus Systems is described as being out of the purview of Citadel Space. Um, and most of the second game takes place within the Terminus Systems. Those, those are the systems that you explore in that game. Um it's the main area, the main harbour area in the Terminus Systems is a space station known as Omega. Omega is run by a particularly ambitious Asari who is voiced by Karian Moss of the Matrix fame, uh, known as Arya Talok. Uh, Karian Moss is one of several um, high-profile actors who play voice roles within these games, especially Actors from other science fiction shows. There's also Trisha Heifer from and um, Michael Hogan from Battlestar Galactica. There is um, uh, Marina Sirtis, Dwight Schultz, Armin Shimman, um, and Michael Dorn, all from Star Trek. Um, Adam Baldwin from Firefly plays a character in Mass Effect 2. Um... Shore Agladashu from uh, The Expanse plays a character as well. Um, there's, yeah, there's a few high-profile actors playing roles across the trilogy. Which is always nice. But yeah, uh, Arya Talok runs Omega. And Omega is a, a hub world that you visit. It, it essentially replaces the Citadel as your main hub. For Mass Effect 2, for story purposes, um, that I don't want to go too deep into, uh, at least not yet. I will probably cover spoilers later in this, um, later in this podcast. I've decided. Um, but yeah, and then there's the final section of the galaxy, which is the Atacan Traverse, which is where most of the first game systems take. Uh, exist. Uh, the Atrican Traverse is sort of a sector of space where there's relatively few colonies, um, a lot of unexplored worlds, um, but it's on the border of the Terminus systems. It's sort of between Council Space and the Terminus systems. As a result, um, citadel jurisdiction is light because the citadel is always trying to avoid war with the terminus systems um and one of the main races involved in the, the traverse area is the the batarians um and humans so you tend to clash uh humans are settling the traverse sort of against the advice of the citadel 
Um, but it seems to be that that's roughly where they settled originally. I should explain as well, the First Contact War, uh, I think, originates because as a result of the Rachni Wars, I forgot to mention that, um, the Rachni Wars uh, ex came about because essentially the Citadel uh, forces opened a mass relay to a Rachni system. As a result, after the Rachni Wars, the council no longer reactivates relays while exploring unless they have found the partner relay. So the relay that that relay will jump to. Um, the first contact war happens because the Turians find humans reactivating a relay without finding the partner. And it leads to a misunderstanding. Um, and like I said, it's called the First Contact War by the Humans. It's called like the Relay 314 incident to the Turians. Um, like to them, it's not a big deal. <laughs> but yeah, it's a, a very influential event in the recent history of especially the first game. So yeah. So... Um... I suppose I should talk about the characters in Mass Effect because this is um, a key part of the whole thing. Now, Mass Effect, um, the title to me, I'm not sure if Bioware have ever confirmed this, um, but it always seems to be to me to be a pun because it's not just the name of the technology that's used, you know, Mass Effect technology, um, but because of the conversation wheel. Um, and with conversation being such a core part of the gameplay, you're able, as Shepard, to have this massive effect on the characters that you encounter. Um, across the three games, I mean, there's certain things that are pretty standard for an RPG, um, such as being able to um, make enemies of certain characters. Certain characters um, can be either killed or spared by Shepard. Um, whether characters join your squad, um, and even, um, like I said, pursuing romances with characters. Um, so as a result, the characters create a, a very key part of the whole experience. Um, and this isn't counting the effects you can have on the actual galaxy through the story. Um, so, the... When the game starts, um, the first game, there's six companions in the first game, 12 companions in the um, second game, and seven or eight in the third game, uh, not counting DLC characters. Um, now, the DLC characters tend to only be around for a particular mission. And obviously that that's just includes the squad mates that you actually take on missions. It doesn't include characters that you interact with as key part of missions or, or other members of your crew. For example, the, the ship you're on, the SSV Normandy, which is um, the ship that you use to explore the galaxy, is piloted by um, Jeff Joker Moreau. Now, Joker is voiced by Seth Green. Um, who does a fantastic job. He's also modelled to look like Seth Green as well. Um, 
Joker is a very interesting character. He gets uh, a lot of very funny dialogue, very memorable dialogue with Shepard um, as the games go on, especially after certain key missions. And But yet he never joins you in battle. He's never part of your squad. But he's an invaluable member of your crew and is even briefly playable at one point in the second game. So you become very drawn to him as a character in the same way that you do with other squad mates. You're able to um, to influence him, to support him, to um, or or not to support him, as the case may be in certain instances. And yeah, it's a so he becomes a, a key part of the character, despite not being one of the I think it's sixteen or seventeen different characters that you can join with his squad mates, because obviously some of the squad mates reappear in subsequent games. So let's talk a bit about the squad mates themselves. Um, generally, your human squad mates uh, and your starting squad mates for each game tend to be the less memorable. I think that's because just some of the other characters are so well written um, as sort of exemplars of their species. Uh, within the game. Um, in the first game, your six squad mates are uh, Caden Lalenko, who is a biotic marine under your command, uh, Ashley Williams, who is another marine that joins you after you save her on the opening planet. Then you join up with Garrus Vakarian, who is a Turian, a member of the Citadel Police Force, um, and becomes one of your recurring squad mates throughout the three games. Erdnaut Rex, um, who is a Krogan bounty hunter um, with, a, with a very long history, who has very particular opinions about the Genophage. And he he's not one that talks to you very much at the start. He does kind of open up later on. Um, Tali Zora, who is a Quarian, a young Quarian woman on her pilgrimage, which is where Quarians are sent from the migrant fleet to sort of like a, a like a rite of adulthood, and they have to come back to the fleet and um, with something that the fleet can use. So you encounter her during her pilgrimage in the first game. She also is available as a squad mate in all three games, provided she survives certain events. Um, and the final choice, uh, the final squad mate um, is Dr. Liara Tassoni, who is an Asari, and she is the daughter of Matriarch Benezia, who is one of Saren's assistants in the first game, who's voiced by Marina Sirtis. Um... When you first meet Liara, she's a scientist who studies the Protheans. Um, she's also a romance interest for the first game, alongside the two human interests, Ashley and Caden. Now, the squad mates in that first game as well, also to me, very felt like they had a lot in common with some of the squad mates that you encounter in the first nights of the Old Republic. Um... For example, um, in Knights of the Old Republic, there's a character you can meet named Candorous Ordo, and you can get Ordo to tell you war stories. 
you this seems to be subverted in the character of Rex, who when you ask him to tell you some of his exciting war stories, will refuse. Um, almost subverting the trope, despite them being outwardly very similar characters in terms of their, their mannerisms. Tali as well is um, a very young, almost naive character, which makes her very similar to the street urchin uh, Mission Veo from Knights of the Old Republic. So there's some similarity in tone. Um, however, there are also differences. I know a lot of characters, um, a lot of players, sorry, um, felt very negatively drawn towards Caden Elenko as he shares the voice actor with um, Carth Onassi, who is one of the characters from Knights of the Old Republic. Um, Carth was a character who a lot of players, especially if they were playing as male Revan in Knights of the Old Republic, found very dull. Um because a lot of his more interesting story elements are only really revealed either late in the game or um, if you are uh, a female Revan and romancing him. Um, so as a result, with people not tending to like Karth, they also tend not to like Caden. Uh, and I think that's a bit unfair because Caden is not a terrible character and he's very, very different to Karth. He's a lot less um, acerbic, for one. Caden's a much nicer guy. Now, those are your six squadmates for the first game. Um, in the so in the first game, your goal is to discover um, what Saren is up to. Now, Tali, Rex, and Garrus all join you on the Citadel um, during your mission to expose. Saren. In fact, it's Tali has the evidence that links Saren to the Geth, um, so she becomes essential. You can refuse certain characters to join you, um, either Rex or Garrus, however most people don't, and generally I don't recommend skipping either of them, they're very good characters. You are then tasked with finding Liara, because obviously with her being Benezia's daughter, and discovering Benezia's link to Saren, you hope that she might give you an insight. Liara's um, biotic abilities also, and her natural abilities in Ansari, allow her to help Shepard understand the, the vision that they've received from the Prothean Beacon, which also leads to the two characters getting closer and learning more about the Protheans and the Reapers. There... During the course of the game, several of the characters can die. Um, several of the squadmates can die. One of them can actively turn on you. Um, but after the first game, Shepard is left in a position where, you know, the mission is done. And into the second game, there is a break. And... As a result of events in the second game, which I won't spoil here, but I will spoil perhaps later in this podcast, um, Shepard ends up under the purview of Cerberus. Cerberus is led by a character named the Elusive Man. They are an offshoot of the Systems Alliance um, and as a sort of a human-centric group. Um, and unfortunately, with modern politics, it's 
even more believable than ever to see uh, a group like this existing in a science fiction setting. The leader, the elusive man, is very charming, very charismatic. He's voiced by Martin Sheen, um, notably of The West Wing. And he does a, a stupendous job as um, elusive man. He's a very, very interesting character. You encounter Cerberus's um, agents in certain side quests in the first game. And they're described as sort of a rogue black ops unit. The Cerberus that you encounter in the second game is much more defined than that, um, but also tries to distance itself from the Cerberus that you encountered in the first game. They... Shepard joins Cerberus because essentially Shepard's warnings about the Reapers have been forgotten. And so... Yeah, so Cerberus um, gives you a ship, gives you a squad, sends you out to uh, on the mission to stop the Reapers. But more importantly, they send you on a mission which becomes the core of Mass Effect 2, which is um, to stop the abduction of human colonies by a race known as the Collectors. Now... With this, you're tasked with uh, two Cerberus operatives as your first crew. Um, there is Miranda Lawson, who is described as genetically perfect. Um, she's played by Yvonne Strahovski. And her she's got quite a dark backstory, um, but is also used as a lot of the series sex appeal, especially in the original release. Um, so a lot of those kind of more problematic... Um, views of the character have been taken out, specifically camera angles focusing on her arse. Now, uh, and you're also assigned uh, Jacob Taylor, who was a former Alliance soldier who appeared in a spin-off game before the release of Mass Effect 2, um, as one of your assistants as well. You're then tasked with building a team to fight the Reapers, uh, to fight the Collectors, sorry. Um, firstly, you get the Solarian character, Morden Solus. He turns out to be a scientist who is involved in... He's done some work on the Genophage in the past. He's a very skilled uh, genetic manipulator. And he is part of the crew. He's, he's there to give you a, a scientific... Um, way of stopping the Collectors and stopping you from being vulnerable to them. You are asked to require, uh, to find a vigilante um, on Omega, known as Archangel, who is revealed to be Garrus. Um, having gone down sort of a... sort of a dark path without Shepard's influence. Um, you are tasked with finding a very powerful biotic prisoner known as Subject Zero and later given the name Jack. She is absolutely fantastic. Um, she does suffer a little bit from the same problem that Karth did, um, which is that if you're not romancing her as a male shepherd, some of her character development does just stop if you're playing as female shepherd. 
which is a shame because she is one of my favorite characters in the series and her backstory is incredible. Um, but as I tend to play female Shepherd, I don't tend to experience a whole lot of it. <laughs> um, there's also a tank bred Krogan designed to combat the Genophage, known as Grunt. Um, Grunt is a very, very interesting character. He becomes almost like a, a surrogate son <laughs> to Shepard, uh, is the best way of describing it. He's, yeah, young, impulsive, very funny. Um, has some amazing lines. Um, you find that half of the team in the first half of the game. There's two DLC characters as well called um, Both Human and both more interesting than Miranda and or Jacob. Uh, one is Zaid Masani. He is voiced by Robin Sachs, who played the villain in Galaxy Quest. He does a brilliant job in the role. He's got a very distinctive voice as the character. He's a former... Uh, mercenary and bounty hunter who was left for dead after being shot in the head and is out for revenge and provided you meet his needs he will join you the other is a spy um, known as Kasumi Goto Kasumi is able to turn invisible and uh, strike from the shadows and uh, she's described as the best thief in the, in the galaxy um very, very cool character. Um, and then in the second half of the game, because the game originally released on two discs, so the um, the first half of the game involves you collecting one half of the team, the second half of the game involves you collecting the other half of the team. The second half of the team is a character called Samara, who is an Asari Justicar, which is essentially a like a warrior monk um, for the Asari. She's sworn to a very specific code of service. Um, Tali, who returns after encountering her earlier in that game. Uh, Thane, who is the Drell assassin I spoke about earlier on. He is dying and is trying to atone for all of his sins as an assassin. Very, very interesting character because he sees himself as an assassin working on behalf of the Hanar rather than working for himself. So he sees his use as an assassin in the same way that a normal assassin might use a gun or a blade. Um, he is the weapon that was used by the Hanar. It's a very, very interesting character. Um, he's one of the romance options and one of my preferred romance options for that game. Um, finally, you find a Geth character. Uh, named Legion, who you can get to join your team or you can sell. And I believe that's all of them. There's many other prominent supporting characters who appear in the second game. Like I said, I already mentioned um, Arya Talok, um, who runs Omega. She's very, very interesting. There's a CSEC officer known as... Um, Commander Bailey, who's voiced by Michael Hogan. Um, characters in the first game that return in the second game are um, Captain Anderson, who is your former your former commander. Um, he's voiced by Keith David, who does a, a brilliant job in, in the role. Um, there's also the human ambassador, Ambassador Adina. 
Um, he's a bit of sleaze, but I, I just generally don't like politicians, so that might be why. Uh, yeah, Anderson and Adina reappear in all three games. Um, you do have the option of choosing something, however, um, you know, which one of them becomes a representative to the council at the end of the first game. Slight spoilers. Um, but um, due to events that happened in one of the spin-off books, um, Udina always ends up being the one who has represented humanity in the final game, um, which I, I felt a bit upset by at the time because I picked Anderson, um, but it does make sense narratively, I suppose. Some some things that happened in spin-off media, like comics, video games, books, um, that were coming out while the series was in production, as well as um, the the daily news sites, uh, daily news articles that were posted in the game within the game, like on the title screen, um, which ran for like a year over the release of Mass Effect Two, um, do have an impact in Mass Effect Three, and it's. A shame because it does mean that some of the story happens off screen, but at the same time, it's also very, very cool as it allows for almost a a more expansive world. The world continues while you aren't a part of it, which I do like. Um, by the time of Mass Effect Three, um, you've you know you defeated Saren. You go through a suicide mission to defeat the Collectors, and how well you have prepared for that suicide mission determines which of your crew survive. Um, as part of the preparations, you have to help a lot of those characters uh, in the second game, your squad mates, you have to help them sort of centre themselves by dealing with any of the past issues that they're dealing with. Um, so, for example, Zaid wants revenge on the person who left him for dead. You can choose to help him or not. Um... And there's many, many others, and some of them are very, very good and are key parts of all their character arcs. So I don't want to spoil them. Um, I, I, the loyalty missions um, that you go through are probably the most in entertaining parts of Mass Effect 2. Um, them and the actual final suicide mission itself. Mass Effect 2 was followed by some DLC, uh, one of which includes Liara returning. Um, which is called the Layer of the Shadow Broker. The Shadow Broker being this information trader whose re existence is revealed in the first game. He kind of sells secrets to all the governments, um, but no governments ever really get an advantage. All the secrets seem to balance out. Very, very clever idea of this um, futuristic information broker. And um, in the time between the first and the second game, Liara has made an enemy of him. So you help her deal with that by taking the fight to the Shadow Broker. Um, it's very, very interesting DLC. It's best played after the main quest of Mass Effect 2. Um, ditto with the other DLC, which is Arrival. Um, which works more as a direct prologue to Mass Effect 3. Obviously they were released after the release of Mass Effect 2. Um, but as you play them in the modern games now, they trigger sort of halfway through the game. And they are best off saved until much later on. 
that's just a personal recommendation. Now, Mass Effect 3, by the time of Mass Effect 3, the Reapers have arrived um, and you are in a full-blown war to defeat them. Um, and their first actions in the game, they take Earth and seize it. And you have to, the whole thrux of the game is to take Earth back. Um, so throughout Mass Effect 3, you are trying to gather allies from the other races in the galaxy, um, both in the Citadel and the Terminus systems. Um, you help characters like Arya retake Omega um, because she's lost it in the time between the two games. Um, you battle Cerberus, who have become a, a, a secondary antagonist. It's very, very interesting. There was a, a multiplayer mode that was thrown into the uh, Mass Effect 3 when it was made, um, which served as part of the Galaxy at War system. The multiplayer mode was fantastic. Um, I still heartily recommend it if you have a cop access to Mass Effect 3. Um, the servers are still live and they're still full you can still play games with people um both on pc and xbox i'm pretty sure you can on ps3 as well um it's a very 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 fun fun game um yeah the multiplayer mode is not part of the legendary edition though um there is plenty of other dlc that is but not that unfortunately um but yeah, the multiplayer mode is, is something I... It, it's one of the only multiplayer modes I've ever played for any game. I tend to play single-player games. Um, but the multiplayer mode for Mass Effect is a collaborative multiplayer. So it's one of the few I've played. And the gameplay-wise just feels like a very, very streamlined version of Mass Effect 3's combat. Which is a combat system I quite enjoyed. So... But in terms of the story of the game, the like I said, it, it's a war footing. Um your main hub area in that game is the citadel and it's a more expansive citadel than you've had in any of the previous games and throughout the game it is filled up with refugees and you hear stories from the front and all these horrible things that people are going through fighting the reapers and all the while all your quests from the previous games come together to give you more and more and more resources to try and take earth back and it's absolutely amazing um if you if characters were kept alive in the previous games um then you can have um garris tali caden ash all return as new squad mates um other characters can join you for important moments in the story but they won't actually join your squad um such as miranda thane Morden, Rex. Um, they become playable in one of the DLC maps, though. So, one of the DLC missions, if they're all still alive. Um, several other... Several of the DLC... The DLC missions for Mass Effect 3 were expansive. The final one was called Citadel... And it was the the very final piece of Mass Effect content re released, and it's essentially a shore leave party in the middle of the game, um, just before you go into the final battle. Um, 
but as most of Mass Effect 3 takes on a very, very dark, somber tone. Um, like I said, walking through the Citadel um, and seeing all these refugees a lot of the time can be really haunting. Um, and there are several moments of the story where you suffer quite drastic defeats, where you, you lose allies that you've been very close with. Um, because certain characters in previous games, you had the option of saving certain characters in Mass Effect 3 will die regardless and it can be quite affecting to the player so the Citadel DLC allows you as part of it to have a party with the squad mates you have left and if you've got a lot of those squad mates from previous there's a ton of fan service so many references so many jokes it's absolutely amazing um, you know, because these are characters that you've bonded with. Um, other characters in the squad in Mass Effect 3 include uh, James Vega, who is a tough uh, marine soldier uh, who you um, became friends with between Mass Effect 2 and 3. He's sort of like the new player introduction character. As a result, a lot of fans don't seem to like him. I really enjoy him. He's voiced by Freddie Prince Jr., who is clearly having a lot of fun in the role. Um, there's a couple of secret characters I don't really want to spoil. Um, one of which comes from a DLC, um, which was contentious at the time it was released, but is a great addition in the Legendary Edition because he will be there from the start. Um, and, of yeah, like I said, Liara returns because she's going to return anyway. She, there's no way she can die in the previous games, so she returns for this one. So, yeah, depending on how well you've... The actions you've taken in the previous games depends on what your squad can look like, what your allies can look like in Mass Effect 3. And you could be in for a very tough fight, or you could have quite a lot of support. It's... Very interesting seeing everything come together. Um, I think Mass Effect 3, for me, it was quite contentious when it released, especially its ending. Um, it had a very, very famously lambasted ending. Um, a lot of people felt they didn't have enough closure out of it. Um, this was later rectified with a, an extended cut of that ending, which I feel doesn't necessarily help everything but does help to give some more closure. Um, for me, the whole game, though, felt like an ending. A lot of the big issues that have been brought up throughout the series, a lot of the, the key character arcs and things that had been explored, came to a close across the course of the game. And so, for me, it, it worked, and it became a, a very good, very suitable end for the trilogy. Um... It's not perfect. I, I don't think it's perfect. But for what it is, um, it is a great game. It's still visually stunning. Um, even before the Legendary Edition, I replayed the trilogy. Um, and yeah, it's still a visually stunning game. It's very well written in places. And some parts of it are genuinely heartbreaking and very, very heartfelt. So, 
yeah, there's a reason I count this series as among my favourites. You know, this series does make me cry. <laughs> you know, it it stirs emotion with me. There are certain phrases I associate with this game and they will bring back powerful emotional memories. Um, not just Mass Effect 3, the entire series. Um, and... Yeah, I would heartily recommend it. If you've not played it, if you've got this far in this video and you're intrigued by this world, Mass Effect is one of the best science fiction universes I think I've ever, ever explored. Um, and it has just an amazing story at the core of it to help. Um, even if you're not necessarily a gamer, there, you know, with the Legendary Edition being released now, people will be playing this game on YouTube, on Twitch. Go and watch someone play it. Um, and with the amount of decisions and options there are in the game, there's still things you can discover years afterwards. Um, I know certain... I've already seen some posts um, this morning um, after the release of the Legendary Edition... Uh, at midnight last night that uh, of people trying to of people noticing things that they've never noticed before despite having played the original trilogy hundreds of times you know um so yeah there's there's new things you can discover all the time and it's a very worthwhile game to experience I'm going to do some slight spoilers in a minute for the actual story. Um, whether anyone, you know, if anyone is unable to actually play the game, experience the game or whatever. Or if you just want to know what the actual story is and why it's so good. Then I'm going to discuss that in a minute after this brief interlude. <laughs> Rudimentary creatures of blood and flesh. You touch my mind, fumbling in ignorance, incapable of understanding. There is a realm of existence so far beyond your own, you cannot even imagine it. Organic life is nothing but a genetic mutation, an accident. Your lives are measured in years and decades. You wither and die. We are eternal. The pinnacle of evolution and existence. Before us, you are nothing. Your extinction is inevitable. We are the end of everything. Organic civilizations rise, evolve, advance, and at the apex of their glory, they are extinguished. We impose order on the chaos of organic life. You exist because we allow it and you will end because we demand it. We have no beginning, we have no end. We are infinite. Millions of years after your civilization has been eradicated and forgotten, we will endure. We are legion. The time of our return is coming. Our numbers will darken the sky of every world. You cannot escape your doom. So I've already outlined the um, 
the introductory plot for Mass Effect 1. As I said, two of the best twists in the entire story of the game come within that first game. Entire entire trilogy come within that first game. Now, um, the first is dur during a mission to Saren's base world, uh, Vermeer. You you end up seeing a an interface for his ship, Sovereign. Now, his ship is this large dreadnought of a ship. It's very imposing and of an unusual design. In interacting with this interface, you learn that this ship is alive. The Reapers that um, Saren is talking about, that Saren wants to bring back, are large ships like Sovereign. Sovereign is the only one in the galaxy. The rest of them are outside of the galaxy. Sovereign describes himself as the vanguard of our destruction. In fact, that, that speech I just recited comes from Sovereign's dialogue during this scene. It's incredible. It's terrifying. The realisation that Sovereign is something so big and so vast and beyond us is absolutely mad and terrifying in the in the moment we then learn after after finally tracking Saren down to a, a hidden and lost world known as Ilus um, through some other twists and shenanigans um, that the there is a Prothean VI on this planet. This entire planet is an old Prothean world that was destroyed from orbit. Um, we get there, we fight the Geth, we chase Saren, and we learn from this AI known as Vigil that the Protheans did not build the mass relays or the Citadel. The mass relays and the Citadel were found by the Protheans and that they were in fact created by the Reapers. The Reapers created the Citadel, and the Citadel itself is a giant mass relay. The Reapers arrived through it and destroyed the Prothean Empire. They took it down over the course of centuries, um, the systematic extermination of all life within the Prothean Empire. And we learn as well that this isn't the first time it's happened. It's happened before. This is a cycle that has been repeating for millions of years as civilizations rise and are then exterminated by the Reapers. And it's terrifying. We learn that the, the, the Reapers are coming back. It can't be stopped. The Sovereign's whole goal was to send a signal to the Keepers to activate the mass relay at the Citadel, which would cause the end of galactic government immediately. However, the Protheans that survived via Vigil were able to change the signal so that when Sovereign tried to activate it this time, it didn't work. As a result, Sovereign was forced to seek allies, and it's implied through the game that he sought first the Rachni, um, and then the Geth. 
um, and is trying to use them. And that's what led him to Saren. This, this quest for allies to restore the signal and bring the Citadel Mass Relay online to allow the Reapers to return from dark space. Now, we end up taking a back door into the Citadel, which is currently locked down by Saren's forces who have arrived there, using um, something called the Conduit. The Conduit turns out to be a mass relay statue which is placed on the Citadel, which we notice from the very early part of the game. When you first arrive on the Citadel, you can notice it. It's very distinctive. And your characters can actually comment on it. Um, Caden, for example, says that it sounds like it's humming. Um, other characters question, you know, why the Protheans made such a unique art piece. But yeah, it turns out it's a miniature mass relay, allowing you to transport from Ilos immediately to the Citadel, which you do. You confront Saren, you confront Sovereign. The human fleet led by the Normandy comes in to help. You have the option of um, sacrificing some of the human fleet to save the Citadel Council or allowing the Citadel Council to be destroyed. Um, that's not the only choice you've had to make. While, while you were on Vermeer, you discovered that Saren was also working on a cure for the Genophage, which can possibly lead to you having to kill Rex if you can't talk him down to help you. Um, or And during the battle on Vermeer, you will have to leave either Ashley or Caden behind to die, um, because they end up split and you can only save one of them. So, yeah, the choice to save the Citadel Council is not the first big choice you've had to make recently in the game. Um, so you choose whether to save them and sacrifice some of the human fleet to do so, or whether you keep your human fleet to strike at Sovereign. Either way, Sovereign's destroyed, Saren is killed, and in the aftermath, um, you get to humanity is given a place on the Citadel Council. And you get to choose either Anderson or Adina as your representative, either with the new council or the old, depending on whether you save them or not. At the start of Mass Effect 2, Shepard is sent out to fight Geth. The Normandy is attacked by the Collectors and destroyed, and Shepard is killed. Turns out Cerberus secured your corpse and reanimated you. And it took two years so this is why you are now two years later with your crew lost and separated because there's been a big time gap. Um, so you join with Cerberus. Um, you learn throughout the course of that game that the Collectors are actually what remains of the Protheans, genetically engineered and forced to serve the Reapers. Um, the Reapers have a power known as indoctrination, which is where they use sort of subsonic fields to create slaves, which they then use to subvert populations. It was something they used against the Protheans during their extinction, something they'd been implied to use throughout a lot of extinctions, and it was implied that that's what they used on Saren, which is why Saren was so blindly following them. Um, in fact, in, towards the end of the first game, you can convince him that he is indoctrinated and he will commit suicide, sparing you an entire boss fight um, if you're able to successfully do it. So, yeah, the Collectors are what remains of the Protheans. 
and they've been twisted to serve the Reapers. Um, you go through the relay to where the collectors are, where their base is, um, on this suicide mission, and you discover that they are building a Reaper out of humans um, due to the impact that you've left on the Reapers by having killed one. Um, you're, able to, you're able to defeat the, the human Reaper. Um, and then go off um, surviving the suicide mission as you do. You help Liara with the Shadow Broker. You then get involved in the Arrival. Where you learn that as a result of you defeating the human Reaper, the Reapers are on the move. They, the final shot of the main Mass Effect 2 game is the Reapers waking up in dark space and heading towards the galaxy. You find out in Arrival that they are mere days away from a system, a Batarian system, out on the fringes of the galaxy. If they arrive in that system, that mass relay will enable them to join the relay network and attack the galaxy. So, um, you incidents happen, you lose two days, and you wake up with mere hours left to stop them. So, you launch a asteroid, which was part of the, the plan by the group before they ended up indoctrinated, um, into the mass relay to destroy it. However, doing so destroys the entire star system, meaning Shepard is responsible for the deaths of 300,000 Batarians. That then leads into Mass Effect 3, where... Um, the Reapers have finally arrived, because obviously Batarian space and human space are quite close, but Shepard has been in jail for about six months, awaiting trial. The game starts with the Reapers arriving on Earth. Batarian space went dark recently. We don't know what happened, but we can we assume the Reapers have invaded the Batarians. The Batarian space has already fallen, and then Earth is next. Um... And while the Reapers hold Earth, they gradually start spreading to other human colonies, eventually into uh, the Terminus systems, and then finally into Citadel space. And throughout the game of Mass Effect 3, you learn that not only has Cerberus become indoctrinated, as the elusive man tries desperately to use whatever advantage he can get from Reaper technology to fight the Reapers, um, but also... Uh, the Geth have become indoctrinated. Um, not all of them, but most of them. Um, this has been a, a plot thread from the second game through Legion that gets explored. Um, and you have to stop the Quarians who have taken that chosen that moment to try and retake their homeworld from the Geth. Uh, you have to choose whether to save the Quarians or the Geth, or if you have... If you are able to, you can actually make peace between them. You also have to get your army. Um, the way you get the army by getting the Turians on board is by the Turian leader insisting that he will only be able to devote Turian forces to you if you cure the Krogan of the Genophage. Well, if you, if you get the Krogan to help the Turians. Rex, or the other... Um, leader, if Rex is dead, insists they will help, but only if the genophage is cured. 
So using Mordin if he's alive, or other Salarians if they're not, because there, there are stand-in characters for all the others if they are dead. Um, you can potentially cure the Genophage or sabotage the Genophage, making the Krogan think it's cured when it's not. Um, which allows them to save the Turians, which allows the Turians to help you retake Earth. And everything culminates in this amazing battle sequence. One of my favourite sci-fi battle sequences to watch between the Reaper fleet and the allied Citadel fleet as you try and retake Earth. And then the battles uh, across London, because the actual final battle takes place in London, um, which is the hometown, my original hometown. I, I was born outside of London and grew up very, very close to London. So playing through the final battles of one of my favourite game series in the town I grew up in, or something that looks like the town I grew up in, is awesome for me. Um, so yeah, it's, it is a phenomenal, phenomenal game. Like I remember the, the build-up to Mass Effect 3, because I, I, I got the first game, I... Uh, I got into the first game before the release of the second game, but I think the second game was on the way. Um, or got announced very soon after I got the first one. Got the second one when it launched, and then I followed um, the whole year's worth of story updates that were coming in the, the title scenes, the daily news articles, they were called. Um, all the ones that preceded the DLC drops. Um, and then the actual pre-release trailers for Mass Effect 3, which involved a sniper in Big Ben shooting Reapers. Um, you didn't realise what they were at first until it panned out and you saw the Reapers attacking. Um, and yeah, it was a phenomenal build-up to be part of. And yes, like I said, some of the things with the ending were disappointing. Um, but, you know, people felt that their choices weren't quite as represented as they want to. This this fleet that they'd been building, they didn't necessarily see some of the troops that we were explained in the Codex. Like, for example, Elcor with uh, back-mounted weapons. But I think it all comes together satisfyingly enough. Um, to me, the core of Mass Effect is always the characters. The extended cut showed you vignettes of your squad mates. And what became of them after the Reaper War. Which was the main thing I felt was lacking from the original ending. And then having the DLC. Um, specifically the Citadel DLC. I like to personally save the Citadel DLC until after I've done the main game. Because after the very conclusion of the game. You're given a scene featuring a character called the Stargazer. Who is voiced by Buzz Aldrin. Um, telling his presumably grandchild, about the Shepherd. Um, so Shepherd's story has passed into legend um, by this point. And before the, child, before the scene ends, the child asks for another story. And the Stargazer says, very well, one more before bed. And I always like to save the Citadel DLC as that one last story um, to end the series on a, a brilliant high note. But yeah, that's Mass Effect. It's an amazing story. There's so much more in, in it beyond all this. This is just the bare bones of the plot of the series. Um, 
some of the scenes border on nightmare fuel some of them are just crowning moments of awesome um some are heart-rending um some of the choices you have to make can be agonizing um but yes even beyond those main choices the the nuance of the character arcs um like i said the loyalty missions um do you help thane reconnect with his estranged son um do you help do you encourage miranda to talk to her her long lost sister do you you know are you able to successfully defend tali from being exiled from the migrant fleet um do you help garrus um get revenge on the person who betrayed him or do you try and convince garrus that there's a different way of solving the problem all sorts of things like that and even some of the dlc missions for example there's a dlc mission called overlord um the actual dlc is is pretty weak it's just a standard side mission against synthetic enemies um but the final conversation of that dlc you learn that a man uh you know a, a very severely autistic man has been used uh, and plugged into a computer by his brother his his brother who is a scientist who should be looking after him and has instead taken advantage of him and done something horrible and beyond words to his younger brother his vulnerable brother and you know while he's plugged into this computer all that david the 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 young man can say is please make it stop it's it's heartrending and you can't um you know there's the i don't see any way anyone could justify keeping david in that situation although it is one of the options um but yeah the a moment like that final conversation makes what is a, a relatively substandard DLC become amazing just because of how powerful that that reveal and that moment is. And so yeah, that's Mass Effect. That is what it is. It's incredible. And it's got some incredible storytelling, incredible characters. And I heartily recommend it. So thank you for joining me in this deep dive into the Mass Effect trilogy. Um, this sort of franchise exploration is something a bit more indulgent than what I usually do here. Um, I may do it a bit more often if it's something people like, if something that people respond to, um, but not too regularly. There's plenty of other topics I'd much rather address first um, before doing more franchise deep dives. But with the uh, the Mass Effect Legendary, Mass Effect Trilogy Legendary Edition launching today, uh, May 14th, 2021, I couldn't let this opportunity go by without 
taking the time to talk about it. So I'm going to be going and playing the game now. Um, from what I've played already, it is thoroughly enjoyable. Admittedly, I haven't played much, but it is essentially the games I loved with just enough of a gameplay tweak and a graphic overhaul to make them stand alongside um, some more modern games. So I'm, I'm very satisfied with the final product. I hope you all look after yourself. Have a great time. If you want to discuss anything with me, um, search for Gardo um, on Twitter, Reddit, Instagram, um, specifically Gardo Hedgehog on Twitter, but at Gardo on Reddit and Instagram. You can speak to me there or just search Gardo Goes Geek and you should find me on social media. Thank you very much for listening and joining me in this episode. Take care of yourselves. Until next time. <laughs>